Okay, this is uh, my overview of the Romans. Um, for a moment, I want you just to keep your eyes up on screen because I'm going to begin with a movie trailer. Um, so there's no notes that need to be taken through these first two movie trailers. Just uh, half-closed computers for a sec and watch on screen. Okay, year after I was born, 1959, um, the year that Hawaii became a state. What some people consider to be the greatest film of all time uh, hit the big screen. It was called Ben-Hur, starring Charlton Heston. It's a story of a young man named uh, Judah Ben-Hur, a Jew, uh, who is um, betrayed by a Roman prince who's a friend of his and sold into slavery and uh, who then works his way out of slavery and rises to become a Roman prince. Um, he, he's uh, a, a Roman prince who does everything that Roman princes would do within the empire, uh, but then in an extremely dramatic moment uh, towards the end of the film, he meets Christ and goes through a remarkable conversion process where he becomes, uh, or where he leaves behind not only his Romanness, his Roman empire-ness, but also his Jewishness as he becomes um, a Christian. So here's the trailer for that film. Ben-Hur was a massive film. It hit the theaters like a bomb. It was one of the first truly great epics, and again, people still swear by it. It's the greatest film they've ever seen. The nine-minute chariot race sequence, a lot of people consider to be the greatest, most exciting nine minutes in cinematic history. Um, and, of course, the story is a riveting story, but it's an epic story it told in the sort of, uh, you know, old Greek Homeric epic style. It's a very long film. It's a big film. It's the film, really, that shaped my cinema experience because it's one of the first films that I saw on the big screen when I was a young kid, and it had just such a massive quality to it. I'm sure it had an impact on me in terms of my interest in history. Well... Shift forward to just two years ago, not this past August, but the August before that, and HBO introduced its great epic series called Rome, and here's the trailer to that. This HBO series also hit uh, kind of like a blockbuster, had a sort of bomb-like effect to it um, because of the extent to which HBO went to recreate Rome for, as, as a set for this particular series. Quite extraordinary, right down to the nitty-gritty details of what Rome was like during the, during the Empire. Um, and of course, for me, I had to watch every single second of it. I can't show any of it to you because there's too much sex and violence in it, uh, but there you go. Anyway, so kind of bookends for me, for my life, the beginning of my life and the current place in my life hopefully maybe only halfway through. Um, and Rome is still of great fascination to me. So the way that we start this whole process is by wondering through a question, what is it about Rome that seems to fascinate people so much? Why is it that Gladiator, the film, the Ridley Scott film, is um, still one of the highest grossing films of all time? Uh, what is it about Roman culture and the empire and the stories of the empire that seems to draw people in, especially in our Western culture. I'm not sure that Eastern cultures care that much, but in our Western culture, it seems to have um, particular emphasis. 
So we ask that at the beginning of this process as a way of kind of guiding us through. Okay, so take a look up on screen here. We start with this iconic image and we wonder why this image? Why is it that when I say Rome, you immediately think Colosseum? It's a rhetorical question because the answer is really embedded in the question itself. We would, anytime that we think about the Romans, um, our thinking is shaped by this particular image because that's what Hollywood, that's what the media, that's what the history books tend to put in front of us. Do we want to spend our time going through the nitty-gritty details of the Republic and, and the development of uh, all the laws and politics? No. We tend to focus on the gladiatorial combat and on what happened in the Colosseum. And this is the image that we usually get stuck with. But in the same way that uh, I asked those questions prior to my uh, lecture on the Greeks and uh, showed you the film trailer to 300, I wonder if our thinking about the Romans is skewed by the fact that this is our iconic image. Okay, That's what we want to take away from this. Okay, so first we're going to start with a map. So watch up on screen. He's so proud. He's so proud, yeah. <laughs> This is our great long flight to Rome. Took me about five minutes to make that. Okay. How long did it take for us to fly to Rome? Uh, 12, 13, 14 hours. Okay. So we're going to look at these images here. This is Hearst Castle in California, which I visited a couple years ago with my daughter. Um, and these images really capture the um, uh, what we might call the uh, hyper-interest in all things Roman and Roman culture and Roman architecture. Um, William Randolph Hearst was the first great newspaper magnate in this country. He, his uh, Hearst newspapers were the first to uh, really be sort of known throughout the nation and even throughout the world as the great newspaper empire, and he built it. And this is his castle at San Simeon on the uh, on the coast of California, about halfway between San Francisco and Los Angeles. You can visit it, very cool place. They don't allow you, obviously, to swim in the pools. My daughter and I had a little plot where I was gonna accidentally nudge her and knock her into the pool um, so she could swim, but then we thought we might get kicked out and the tour was expensive, so we decided not to go with that plan. Um, but you can see um, clearly in Hearst's interest in all things Roman, our own interest in all things Roman. Okay, how do we know what we know about the Romans and how they ruled? Well, I think it's becoming clear to you guys that what we know about history is based on the sources. We don't get history from a textbook. That's a survey of what happened. We get history from the sources, and you've been thrown deep into those waters and told to swim very early on by me. You've been given uh, primary and secondary sources to analyze with regard, for example, to the Spartans, and now we're going to take a look at the Romans in the same way. You examine the writings of uh, the great historians to decide who would be the biographer of La Pietra, so on and so forth. And our general theme in the class is life is a great DBQ. So what we have here is just one of those examples of how we find out what we know about the Romans. Um, Colosseum, a gladiator story, mentioned yesterday that by far the um, great, the entertainment that was most popular to the Romans was the gladiatorial fights. But I have heard other scholars suggest otherwise, 
that in fact the chariot races were far more interesting to the Romans uh, and that they attended the chariot races in the great Circus Maximus in greater numbers. And this uh, discovery of a Thracian chariot might lead to that kind of conclusion um, and this one is very perfectly preserved so it must have been just the most fantastic thing when they actually uncovered it and were able to um, clear away all of the debris and to see it in its form. But the general idea is that history is layered literally under the dirt. If you go to Rome, which I hope you do someday, and you walk the streets of Rome, you're walking on modern Rome, but literally just a few feet below you is an old Rome, and a few feet below that is an older Rome, and a few feet below that is a really older Rome. And there are some buildings in Rome that you can walk around in where they have actually gone straight down, built a shaft down in, and put a glass top over the thing so that you can literally look down at the layers of history and see the dwellings of the really ancient Romans going back a thousand, two thousand years, some 30, 40, 50 feet below you in the surface. So when you think of history that way, it gets super interesting. In the same way that La Pietra, for example, is built on top of Kamehameha's great war heiau, Papa Ena Ena, that gives you that sense of the layering of history. Okay? All right. So we jump right back into Frippelmet, and which is our thematic breakout of this course and the toolbox that we're going to use. And we look at uh, Roman family dynamics. So very similar to the Greeks in that it was nuclear, mother, father, and children. It was patriarchal. In other words, it was governed by the oldest male member. Very similar to the Greeks in that women had no authority, but women did play a much greater role in culture and even went so far as to have businesses and to gain control of their own families when a male member died, so on and so forth. The majority of Romans worked in agriculture, which shaped their view of life, their total vision of life, as Macaulay said the other day. Uh, they were very respectful of the elderly. I wonder if we still are today. And their middle class and wealthy families held slaves. So they were a culture that did use slave labor as the basis of their unit of production, especially later in the empire. And remember, you don't need to record all of these bullets because they're available to you now that you have the download of the whole PowerPoint. Okay? All right. Now, just for a moment here, we're going to look at the Roman timeline. I'm not holding you to specific dates in the timeline because I'm not really that kind of date person. If, if you do need to know dates, like for example, on a final exam, you would have a cheat sheet with you. Um, but I do want to hold you to a general sense of the timeline. And so the timeline going from older to newer is a thousand year timeline that really roughly begins 400 years before the birth of Christ with the development of the Republic. Then we have the essential middle point of the, of the Roman period, which is the year zero, the birth of Christ, but not marked year zero for the Romans because they really couldn't have cared less about this person that was crucified. They would have had no interest in, he was a minor figure and at that point in time. But really the year zero marks the ascendancy of Emperor or Caesar Augustus, who is the first of the great empires, emperors um, after the Republic period and would lead to a whole series of other emperors 
some of which we'll look at and some of which we'll focus on when we get to the film Gladiator. So we have the Empire period, which is really from year zero all the way through roughly to 400 years after the birth of Christ. Actually, some historians mark the end of the Roman Empire as 476 AD, uh, but it's a slow process by which the empire comes to an end. Okay, so that's the full timeline of the Romans. Okay, shifting to infrepolement religion. The Romans essentially were polytheistic, but they borrowed pretty much everything they had as a religion from the Greeks. So this is something we're coming to know about the Romans, that they were borrowers. They were innovative, they were technical, they were problem solvers, as we've seen in the films uh, that we've watched and also the reading that you've done, but they were also borrowers. They understood what was good about other cultures and they adapted that into their own culture, adopted that into their own culture, and simply changed the names and morphed it in such a way to meet their particular needs. So the Roman gods and mythologies very much reflect what we already know about the Greeks. And this was also mentioned to you uh, in another context with regard to the novel and history uh, and poetry by um, Robert Garland in his lecture. So pre-Greek pre contact uh, Romans worshipped Jupiter, which is the god of the heavens and Mars of war, and um, Quirinus, the common folk, the god of the common folk. And then post-Greek contact, the Romans worshipped Jupiter, Juno, which is the Greek version Hera, or their version of the Greek uh, goddess Hera, and Minerva, which is the Greek goddess Athena. So you can see the borrowing that's going on here, and then just the changing of the names. So the god of messenger, messengers becomes Mercury, the god of the seas becomes Neptune, the god of the underworld becomes Pluto, um, and then, of course, their founding mythology, as mentioned by David Macaulay, is this idea that Romulus and Remus, these abandoned twins, are suckled at the tit or the teats of a she-wolf. And we have to ask at the beginning here, what kind of culture comes from a founding myth in which the founders are suckled by a wolf? This is a critical question. When your founding myth is one in which your founders were actually nurtured by a she-wolf, you would have to wonder if the culture that then develops is one that is going to be wolf-like. You are a reflection of your founding myths. Okay? Our founding myth is the notion of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and all men are created equal. Lovely words from Thomas Jefferson, in no way true at that particular time, especially since he held slaves. But nevertheless, it becomes our creed, and we move forward from there, more or less. Okay? So the idea that, uh, that, and then later the murder of Remus by Romulus, uh, then of course, is this a culture that's founded on murder? Is this a culture that's founded on the idea of a wolf? Um, and we will see how that plays out. It will help guide our thinking as we go through this whole process. Okay, so here's the iconic statue of Romulus and Remus after they've been abandoned by their uncle, uh, being suckled by this she-wolf, and it's something that Romans still to this day completely believe in. It is really the founding myth of their city of Rome. Okay, here's Minerva. Here's Neptune. Now, one example of uh, interesting twist on the uh, mythologies that the Romans engaged in was this idea of the temple of the Vestal Virgins. So here we have this temple of women, 
uh, or this temple where women go to live. And these women do this voluntarily and they do it for their city. This is civic virtue. This is women giving up the earthly life, the life that they might live with men. Um, they live a celibate life and the whole purpose of their lives is to continually pray for the success of their city. It's an interesting concept. Um, and we would take note of this I sort of burgeoning idea of civic virtue and that Romans truly believed in giving back to their city through their participation. Also an idea borrowed from the Greeks, but refined in a particularly Roman way. If you want to know more about the Vestal Virgins, you can investigate that on your own. Okay, shifting to Roman education, and again, all of this text is available to you in the download. So just listen for the nugget-like uh, comments that I would make. So here's the great Roman orator and educator Cicero. So like the Greeks, the Romans didn't have any public schools. Parents were educators. This was a homeschool culture. Um, and then from age 6 to 11, boys and, and some girls attended private schools. So we start to see the glimmerings of the kind of educational culture that we have today. We already know that some slaves are educated. That came from Macaulay's film. We know that uh, some wealthy families continued the education of their kids because these kids needed to be prepared for political life, for a legal life, um, for a life of higher education so they could teach. So again, we see the glimmerings of this uh, idea that we have in our own culture of education for uh, children who have been able to move on, and that's you here at this culture. And again, these studies, studies, Latin and Greek and math and music, astronomy, rhetoric, and law, politics, philosophy, and history is reflected in your own curriculum here. So we see a lot of cultural comparisons in education. Okay, economics. The Romans uh, had a very complex economic system, but in some ways it was uh, very similar to the Greeks in the sense that they were a Mediterranean culture. This is a peninsula that sticks out into the Mediterranean and it's a culture, an economic culture that's based on trade. But it's perhaps more refined than Greek culture because although the Greeks invented coins, it's the Romans who really take the coin and turn it into the coin of the realm. In other words, the common Roman coin with the impression of whoever the emperor was that was um, in power at the time that the coin was impressed, uh, that coin becomes accepted throughout the empire mm, by mandate so that there's a common economic system in which everybody feels secure with what the value of that coin is. And by the way, the Roman emperors figured out really quickly, you know, this notion of inflation, how prices tend to rise over time for any particular good. The Romans uh, emperors understood really early that there were ways that you could actually um, increase the economy through some little tricks like so here's a coin for example this coin weigh, weighs maybe two ounces well if you boil that coin down and then recast it so that each coin is only an ounce you have two coins right so you've now introduced two coins into the economy so you've got more economy because people can spend those coins now if you're a good merchant and you understand that there's now a lot more coin in the economy, what are you going to do? Raise your prices. Ergo the term inflation. So it has a limited short-term value in increasing economy, just like we print money and put it into the economy, but it has a long-term downside 
because after a while prices tend to meet the amount of coin that's in the economy. And in the end, you're either the same place or you're losing because prices are going up. Anyway, Roman economics is really um, centered around their roads because that was how their commerce moved. And of course, you know that over time, um, communications and travel is intimately connected with economics. We know that we've gone through all series of stages in history of different kinds of travel and that that travel carried economics with it, even to the point, for example, in 1958, around the time that Ben-Hur showed up on the screen, uh, President Eisenhower uh, proposed an interstate highway system, and that was built throughout the United States, and uh, of course that facilitated all kinds of commerce. And now today, what is our great interstate highway system? The internet, upon which a, an unbelievable amount of commerce moves every single day. I can actually order a book and have it here in three days and that whole ordering process I can do in about 30 seconds with one click on Amazon.com. What a great innovative thing that was for Amazon. Let's not make the customer go through the whole checkout process. Let's create an account and all they have to do is one click and they can order the book which has cost me, I mean, it's been a, I've spent a fortune on books simply because I, oh, look, I can one-click on that. One-click, one-click, one-click. And all of a sudden, I've spent, you know, a couple hundred bucks on books before you can even blink. Okay, so this whole notion of the Roman roads as facilitating economics is part of that. Okay, so some specifics about this. Obviously, trade and coin, which is developed by the Greeks. So the Romans were exporting tin to Britain or importing tin from Britain. Uh, importing slaves from Asia, importing cloth from Asia, and gems from Asia, and they exported agriculture, and all of this was supported by the Navy, just like um, the Greeks supported their um, economics. And after Augustus, in the second half of the empire, we start to see an empire that's increasingly based on agriculture and slave labor, and this is a crucial point here in talking about the fall of Rome. Because when your economy becomes based on slaves, on slavery, you begin to lose that tremendous motivation that comes from the average free person contributing to the economy. As you become dependent on slavery to produce your goods, you start to see a sort of moral and physical decline of the people who would normally out, be out there working for wages, working for produce. Slaves, you, can, you don't have to pay, they're free. So a society that becomes dependent on slavery is a society that perhaps may be in decline, an idea that you'd wanna pay attention to, okay? So this is the Roman economy. You can see the different products, exporting olive oil, exporting wheat, um, and based on coin, okay? All right, Roman politics. Um, we have these three great figures in Roman politics. We have the first, uh, uh, dictator, not an emperor, the first dictator of Rome uh, right before Augustus, right before the birth of Christ, and that's Julius Caesar, perhaps the most famous of all Romans. Uh, we pay more attention to him than anybody else, um, and uh, he's assassinated in, uh, on March 5th, um, and that's what we call the uh, Ides of March. And then we get Augustus, who's the first great Roman emperor, and then later we get um, a particularly famous emperor who ruled for a very long time, which was unusual, Marcus Aurelius. He's important to us because he's the emperor in the film Gladiator. 
and you're going to uh, see him in his role in the beginning of the film and how he's the one who actually shut down the gladiatorial games because he thought that they were, the games were bringing uh, the Romans to their moral knees, that they were starting to become dependent on these games. But it's his son Commodus who actually resurrects the games and gives rise to this great gladiatorial moment with, uh, with Russell Crowe, of course. Okay? So Roman politics is really divided into the two halves of the timeline. On the one half, we have the Republic, ruled by the people, an idea borrowed from the Greeks, but with a particularly Roman spin on it. They have a Senate. They have rich landowners who are the provincial rulers, just like we saw in the film. What was that guy's name in the film? Licinus, right? Licinus is one of those examples of uh, one of those rich landowners who would be considered a patrician. Um, the Senate elected two consuls who sort of ran the Senate and ran the city of Rome and oversaw the area around it. And there's a system of checks on power so that there was no concentration of power in one particular body because the Roman believed, Romans believed that if you checked power and balanced power, you would get a general sense of fairness in politics. People would be governed fairly through this concept of checks and balances. So over time, the plebeians, which is really the common people, gain a tremendous voice via this tribune system in the Senate, that they actually engage in the election of these senators, that they're able to influence the outcome, and so on and so forth. And we start to see the seeds of our own government system that we have today. And in 450 BC, 450 years before the birth of Christ, we have an extremely important moment when this laws of the 12 tables are published. And this is really the first time that you see something clearly put up in, in the central square that lists out the laws of that particular culture. So there's no wondering what the laws are. You don't have to worry about whether your ruler is going to change the laws from one minute to the next. The laws are posted. Of course, the consequences of not following the law are, are extreme, but at least the laws are posted for you there. So here we have this facsimile of the Constitution of the United States, very much in the same tradition as the 12 tables. You can get it anywhere. It's not posted unless you go to Washington, uh, or if you're probably, it's probably posted in every American history classroom around the country. Uh, and we don't really pay it, like you don't read it and go, hmm, what's the law that I'm working on or that I'm trying to follow today? But the general sense of it is definitely there. Okay? So Roman politics is, in the beginning, is based on this very much power to the people and checks and balances. Once the Republic begins to slide into corruption and decay, we see the rise of a concentration of power in the hands of one person. Why? That's the question. Why? Why is it that eventually power to the people tends to decay and that we see a reverting back to some notion of, of a single power entity that controls everything. Maybe it's because it's more efficient that way. If the Rapun Ohana were uh, the dictators of Hawaii, things would run so efficiently, I can promise you. Take too much fish, we kill you. <laughs> mm, go out there and uh, buy a Hummer and use too much gas, we kill you. It's that easy, right? I mean, if we're dictators, but you know, we can also be benevolent. If you, if you actually grow a lot of fish and give it away to people, we will raise you up and celebrate you. But if you throw your battery in the stream at the back of Manoa, we will kill you. 
It's that easy, right? But that's a society that's really efficient. Don't throw your battery and you won't die. So we have some really interesting ideas about, well, I mean, we always go, ah, oh, dictators, you know, bad, dictators, bad. But dictators actually make things much more orderly and efficient because the rules and the consequences of those rules are actually much more clearly spelled out and they don't have to be debated, okay? So during uh, the period that we know as the empire, we get ruled by these anointed emperors, one anointing the other. They came and went with some speed, by the way. At one point, there were 26 in a row, um, I think most of which were assassinated. Um, so you do get some instability in that, and that's partly the story of Gladiator as well. They have near absolute power. The, the Senate still exists, but they're just there for show, as you'll see in the film. And um, we get some very good emperors like Marcus Aurelius and some extremely grotesque emperors like, for example, Commodus in the film Gladiator, or my favorite Caligula, who, whose wife became pregnant, but he became worried that his wife was going to give birth to a god who might supersede him, so he cut his wife open and ate the baby. That kind of grotesque. Or Commodus, for example, who loved in the games in, in the arena, he loved to see dwarves fighting women to the death. That kind of grotesque. Or again, Caligula, for example, who when he didn't like during the games what the crowd was doing in their thumbs up and thumbs down, stalked out, had the gates locked, and left the crowd in there for 17 days. Many, most of the crowd died in the heat and without water and food and all, that kind of grotesque. But sometimes great figures like Claudius, who ended up administering the empire into this tremendously efficient and wonderful place to live. You never knew from one emperor to another. That's what you get with a dictator. Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad. Sometimes they can be both good and bad. The rapoons can raise you up or will kill you <laughs> one way or the other, okay? So emperors rarely died naturally, but in the end, the empire really stretched over a quarter of, of uh, the known world at that point, and that's what we're going to see here. Take a look at this map. So when you see the line come in, this is the extent of the Roman Empire, and it's astonishing in how large it is, extending all the way up to Scotland and all the way through South Africa, all the way out into Eurasia, and total control of this area, even out into the Atlantic, through their navy, through their roads, through their armies and so on and so forth. So at the height of the empire, wow, they really had control of a lot. You can see that on the uh, timeline right behind you right there. That's the uh, sort of uh, pinkish color here. That's the fullest extent of the Roman Empire. Very impressive, but it wouldn't last, which is partly the question that we're gonna deal with later. Okay, shifting over to Roman art. So much of what we know about the Romans, we actually know through their art, and that's very much the same with the Greeks. Uh, but it's actually going to be the subject of this next DBQ that you look at. If you've paid attention to the documents, started to look at them, you're going to see that some of these documents look very familiar. So Roman art was very practical in the sense that it often depicted everyday life. Here you see these two gladiators. And what we might pull from this particular image is the same thing that we noticed in the film yesterday, which is that these two are not dressed the same. They don't have the same armor. It would be like watching um, five young women dressed as football players on a volleyball court playing against five young women dressed as volleyball players. It would be that disconcerting 
when you see something like this. It just does not seem fair. And if a volleyball player in going up over the net to spike ripped out her elbow and popped somebody like that and, you know, cut her open or something, you'd, everybody would go nuts and that kid would be thrown into jail. She'd be cast away. But to the Romans, that, that idea of having people dressed differently was not a problem for them. That was all part of the game. You had to figure out whether your trident was going to be your, your particular weapon of choice or the chain that you swung around, whatever. So we learn a lot from these images. We learn from this image all kinds of things about the relationship between women, that this uh, woman here with the darker skin might be a slave, um, that she might be attending to these women. This might be some sort of religious ritual of some sort. I don't know. It's up to you really to decide how to interpret this, but you can also look at how other people have interpreted um, this in the past. But these are uh, frescoes that are found at Pompeii and Herculaneum, and they tell us really a lot about um, Roman art. But again, the general idea would be that Roman art was practical. It's not art that was designed to uplift the emotion really in any way. It was really more a very practical way of recording what was going on um, similar to the Greeks in that sense, and also to the Egyptians in that sense. Okay, shifting over to Roman law. We're really motoring along really quickly here. So Roman law and politics is fused. You can almost see them as one and the same, Roman law and politics, because what the politicians did was to create or propose and then debate and then create the law. That's what politicians do amongst other things, but that's really their primary function. And that idea that we have today that that's what our politicians do is create the law is found, its genesis is back in Roman culture. So we have the 12 tables. After the Republic and during the Empire, the law becomes a very fluid thing. The law becomes very fluid because it really depended on who was in power at the time. And that's one idea that we have a, a, a tremendous amount of trouble with, do we not? We don't like laws that are fluid. We want to know that the law that was put into place yesterday is the same law that's in place today. We don't like the rules being changed on us from moment to moment. And this is, this is the idea that you get in the Republic, but the idea that slides down into decay during the empires, that the laws could change, okay? So these legal codes that the Romans develop over time, very complex legal codes, would really become the basis of Western law, called, and here's the crucial term, common law. There is a notion in Western culture, whether you're in Germany or France or the United States, or even in Westernized cultures like Japan, that there is such an idea as the common law. Let me give you a specific example of something that is now considered common law. My brothers were actually in, uh, they're tarot farmers up in the back of Waiholi Valley on the windward side. And uh, one day um, they were out doing their thing in their tarot patches and they suddenly noticed that the stream that, that actually brings the water into their tarot patches had dropped down to practically nothing. It was almost dry. And they were shocked. I mean, how does that happen? You know, the rains always keep coming down. How would, how would that happen with the stream? So the good investigators that they were, they headed up the stream on a little hike to go see maybe if they could find what had happened. And they actually found what happened. It was a big, huge pump that had been put into the stream by the Board of Water Supply. What was that pump for? To take the water out of the stream, move it through the Ko'olaus, through a ditch system, and bring it out to this side of the island for houses and sugarcane and pineapple. 
This was back in 1974. Now, to my brothers, that didn't seem fair because they felt that they had fair use to that water in the natural stream. So they filed suit. It took 10 years for that lawsuit to go through the courts. Eventually, the Supreme Court of Hawaii ruled on that case. It's called Rapoon versus Board of Water Supply. And they ruled that the water that's in the stream is called a riparian, R-I-P-A-R-I-N, a riparian right. In other words, what is in the stream is to be available to anybody who lives on the stream. You cannot take that water out of the stream and move it somewhere else and leave somebody else high and dry. What did they base that ruling on? Roman common law. That it has been known since the time of the Romans that a society cannot exist and cannot function if somebody can walk in and take water out of a stream and move it somewhere else without due process, without a legal process. So the Board of Water Supply was forced to put that water back into the stream and to remove the pump, more or less. A lot of negotiations about how much. But you see where that's coming from, right? Roman common law believes that there are certain things that have to be protected by the state, by the government. Okay, so that's the general idea. So these natural laws that I have a right to live and that there are common laws that I live by come from the Romans um, themselves, and it really has its legacy in our current culture. Okay, Roman media and communications. Media and communications are fused together with the Romans with their roads. So Roman roads were their communication. For us, roads were communication until we got the telegraph and then the telephone and then ultimately the internet and now to the point where you can, for example, Skype somebody and have a conversation with your relative in Japan uh, for free through an internet system. Um, these are very complex roads that we've built and their genesis is found here in these Roman roads. So look at this image for a second. Wow, an astonishing amount of roadage built by the Romans. And they did it in such a short amount of time, of course, using slave labor, but they did it very, very quickly. And these roads are still there and you can still walk on these roads. In fact, the modern roads are often built right alongside the old Roman roads themselves. And of course, if anything was written down and needed to be communicated over distance, there you go. You've got Roman roads that can move it really quickly. Sort of like uh, the first FedEx system, like Federal Express. Well, if this was a message from the emperor, then it was a federal message. And it went by express. Somebody who was moving along the road at rapid speed, probably by horseback. Okay, So we see that similar idea that the uh, Greeks were thinking about, but not the same as the Greeks because the Romans had much more landmass and were not broken up into hundreds of tiny islands. Okay, the Roman environment. Well, we know that environment because we really know the Mediterranean environment because we already know the Greek environment already, that it was dry, it was fruitful, the soil was rich, um, and of course, this is where we want to be today, in Tuscany, perhaps sitting and having some cheese and bread and some olive oil, and you guys can't drink, I would be having a glass of wine, you'd be drinking a little, I don't know, Italian spring water of some sort or some, something like that, right? Or we would be up skiing in the Italian Alps if we wanted to, um, oh, to be there, right? But just think about, look at this image and just think that when you walk up campus after A Block today, you're literally sitting in an environment that, that looks just like Rome would look. Okay? Although it's Florence, but it's the same kind of environment, okay? Even the cypress trees. 
Okay, now we come down to the end. These are examples of Roman technology. Bridges are the aqueducts, the roads. This is the building of the road and a, a, a technical slide that shows how the roads were built and how they lasted so long. Roman bridges, quite extraordinary, just extraordinary feats of architecture building these bridges, but allowed them to move very rapidly, very fast, especially in, uh, in terms of military. Here we have Roman technology as expressed in the kinds of shields that they had. And you guys all know about the Roman phalanx, where everybody would band together. You probably saw it if you saw 300. Everybody would band together and they would put their shields up above them and they could withstand barrages of arrows. And then as soon as the arrows were over, then they would lift up and they could charge forward and fight. These are all applications of technology in various ways. The helmetry, everything else. And of course, we get these uh, various images of Roman technology, the Roman bath and the Roman courtyard. These are all applications of these technologies for what David Macaulay calls that total vision of life, okay? So the thing to take away from this, the nugget is how the Romans used technology to achieve that total vision. And think about the extent to which we do that today, that we use technology to achieve a total vision of life. The invention of the iPod was a, an attempt to find a total vision of life because you didn't want to be separated from your music library. You wanted to be able to dance to your music library. You wanted to be able to carry it with you, and you wanted to be able to access it really quickly and look at all the artwork and everything else. A remarkable moment in technology as applied to that total vision. Okay? All right. And of course, the greatest application of technology, at least for a lot of people, is the building of the Colosseum. Again, remarkably, in only nine years, they built this structure. Okay. When you think about H3, it took 20 years to build, $8 billion, it's the most expensive piece of federal highway in the United States, it's only 17 miles long, 20 years to build that, the Romans built the Colosseum in nine years. It was astonishingly fast, but you now know from uh, the gladiator's story why they were doing that, that Titus was in a great rush to honor his father Vespasian and to get this thing built so that there would be a chance to do. But of course, Vespasian dies before um, the Colosseum is completed. Okay. So we come to the end of this. Timing is good. And we come down to what is marked as the end of the empire. And one of the reasons that scholars assert uh, is the cause of the end of the empire was in fact the arrival of Christ way back 400, 500 years before, and the emergence for the very first time of a monotheistic tradition, a single God, who, unlike the Jewish tradition, with the, a, a God who is involved in everybody's affairs all the time. If you read the Old Testament, there's a lot of death and destruction in the Old Testament. God's active. I mean, look at the story of Noah. Everybody dies but Noah and his wife and his kids and the animals that got to go on board, everybody else dies. That's a pretty destructive God, okay? He's pretty vengeful, he's pretty angry. But the God of Christ is a loving God, a removed God, a merciful God, a God who promises everlasting life. And that idea that comes to fruition in the time of Christ becomes very attractive to the Romans. And you can imagine as the empire began to slide into decay, that idea became more and more attractive 
to the Romans. That notion that, well, this life is pretty miserable right now, so there must be something better. I like this idea of a, of a loving God that's providing me with salvation and an eternal life of some sort. So from a small cult to a major threat to the Roman Empire is Christianity, and then ultimately Christianity becomes the Roman Empire, becomes the religion of the Roman Empire. Remarkably, people don't really know that, that the Roman emperors begin to convert to Christianity, and you know what happens when an emperor converts? Everybody converts. So the culture it itself begins to shift in the direction of Christianity, and therein lies this notion of the fall of Rome happening because of the rise of Christianity. So now the Christians wouldn't view that as the fall of Rome. They would view that as the rise of a new Rome, a Christian Rome. And in fact, the Christian church would simply replace all the old Roman institutions and use their roads and use their buildings and would establish for itself its own Christian empire that we call the Catholic Church. This is the first official church to emerge out of Christianity. Okay, So the conversion of Constantine the first emperor to convert to Christianity really ensures its long-term future. Because you've got to wonder, how is it that this, sorry, raggedy young man who's preaching some pretty bizarre stuff ends up becoming the generator of the largest religion on the face of the earth? How does that happen? I mean, I challenge you guys to start a religion. I don't think that you could. There was one guy who actually tried to, well, here's, here's the story. Uh, Great Britain in its census about 20 years ago, you know how a census works, right? There's a section where you have to list your religious affiliation, and there's always an other. You can choose not to, of course, but there's an other. In Great Britain, so many people marked other and wrote in Jedi Knight that they had to classify it as an official religion. Why can't it be an official religion? It's based on the force. <laughs> and what's not religious about that? Right? Right? So, Jedi Knightism, you know, Yodaism, the forceism, I don't know what you would call it, you know, Star, uh, you know, Star Warsism, I don't know what that religion would be called, right? Okay. So you have to think about how remarkable it is that Christianity managed to survive all the different strange and interesting cults that existed at the time and became Christianity. Okay, now, um, so don't need to record anything more. Just hold for a second, half close, save, half close, so that you can watch. We're going to end on these two, uh, uh, two trailers. Okay, in 1988, Mel Gibson came out with his film, The Passion of the Christ. This was a blockbuster film that arrived in the United States really at a moment uh, during uh, the presidency of Ronald, or the end of the presidency of Ronald Reagan and the shift to the presidency of George Herbert Walker Bush, Bush the Elder, Bush 41 they call him. Um, and it came at a time when um, spirituality was very much on the rise in America and evangelical Christianity was at a very powerful point um, and that they had supported these two presidents and would later support um, George Bush the Younger, Bush 43. And this film somehow tapped into the American psyche in a way that I had not seen before. It's actually one of the highest grossing films of all time in the United States and even around the world. And really what it is, is it's a violent, violent, violent film that depicts the last hours of Christ. 
Okay, oops, actually I've mucked this up a little bit. Sorry, back up, rewind. I got my, my two trailers out of order. Okay, in 1988, Martin Scorsese came out with a film called The Last Temptation of Christ. So you guys know the general story that Christ was put up on the cross, and at that moment he received God and then accepted God's grace and God's promise of heaven and that he would lift the, uh, the sins of the world upon his shoulders and rise to the right hand of the Father and so would be the end of the story of Christianity and the beginning of the story of everlasting Christianity. Well, that story was rock solid in the New Testament, but Martin Scorsese's adaptation of Nikos Kazantzakis' book, The Last Temptation of Christ, really kind of blew everybody's concept of Christianity out of the water because in this film, Christ has a conversion moment on the cross in which Satan comes to him and says, you don't need to do this whole lifting everybody's sins on your shoulder thing. Drop down off the cross, marry Mary Magdalene, have intercourse with her and produce a child and live a normal and mortal life. It's okay. And Christ says, yes. In Kazantzakis' book. Shocking, right? Now, this whole, con well, ultimately in Kazantzakis' book, he actually does give up this dream and ends up back on the cross and then goes through it the way that the Gospels tell it. But this movie caused people to picket theaters because it really blew people's concept of Christianity out of the water. Here you go. Here's the trailer. Ergo, the last temptation of Christ, the greatest temptation, turns out to be a dream and then he comes back to what he is really supposed to do, which actually makes the idea all the more powerful that he gives himself up for crucifixion. Okay, then we get, finally, Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, which many people reacted very negatively to because of its violence. Really, it was centered on how violently the Romans treated Christ, and there was also a lot of latent anti-Semitism, anti-Jewishness in it, because the Jews had given Christ up for, because they didn't like what he was preaching, given him up for crucifixion, and the Romans simply accepted what the Jews wanted to do. But people went to the theaters to see this in droves, astonishing numbers, and it really said a lot about what was happening at the time. Here's the trailer for that.
This film was so violent that ultimately Mel Gibson had to release a second version of it, which had some of the violence taken out. Uh, so uh, just based on objections from uh, people who had gone to see it and wanted to see something that was um, a little less um, traumatic. Okay. All right. So in the end, we have this question that we're looking at uh, that will come next week um, in the form of the uh, paper that you're going to write. And it looks at the fall of Rome, although we're going to pick only one aspect of it. And again, you don't have to record these because um, they're, the they're available to you um, in the download. So why did Rome fall? There's all these answers that people have put up here about why Rome fell. The intellectual answer that they had a power to the people Republican form of government and that those principles that they had embedded in the Republic, uh, they, they morphed them and corrupted them to create an empire and the morphing of those principles, the corruption of those principles ultimately destroyed the Roman people or the empire itself. There's the moral answer. In other words, people got slothful, they got luxurious, they began to license themselves to corruption and luxury. And that might be the, the answer that best fits, for example, with the gladiator combat and that sort of a thing. There's the Christian answer. Christianity ultimately disarmed the Romans. It said, turn the other cheek, and the Romans couldn't be the Romans anymore. There's the political answer, that this whole concept of the Caesars, of Caesarism, caused people to lose public spirit, because who wants to participate when you're being ruled by a dictator? So that civic spirit disappeared. The social answer, that they became dependent on slavery and there was a war between the rich and the poor. The economic answer, that their trade became less than productive, um, that they, as an economic culture, became less than productive because they were dependent on slave labor. There's the physical answer, that they literally depleted their soil and they ran out of productive soil because they didn't know how to put nutrients back into the soil. They just extracted, extracted, extracted. And there's the genetic answer that Romans mixed with other ethnicities and they lost their Romanness. Hmm, interesting concept, eh? As we Americans mix more and more. There's the pathological answer, the disease answer, that literally lead pipes that they was one of their great technical innovations was poisoning their brains. You guys know that lead poisons your brains and that they, as a culture, literally poisoned themselves. They also suffered from plagues and malaria. And then there's this marvelous biological, cyclical, mystical answer that the Romans, like every other great empire, is like an organism that is given birth to, that it, it comes into being, it grows into adolescence, and like any organism, ultimately, it grows old and dies which raises interesting questions about us and whether that answer can be applied to us and are we, where are we along that process if you believe in that, okay? So these are the various answers as to why Rome fell, okay? And that is the end of this overview of the Romans.